there, Rev Divers. We are so excited today to introduce you to someone that we are a huge, huge fan of. So Dr. Eric Bricker, you may know him better as the whiteboard doctor. He is that great physician we see online doing all kinds of education and really explaining not only the industry, but what we can do to improve it in healthcare. He is working with A Healthcare Z, or I should say runs A Healthcare Z, educating all of us out there, especially all of us in revenue cycle management. And now he started a new position with First Stop Health. We are so excited to have you on the show, Dr. Bricker. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you. I, I have to say, you know, I fumble a little bit chatting with you because I'm a huge fan and you have tons of, of huge fans of you. The whiteboard doctor. I, I mean, we just can't believe it. Kim and I are thrilled to have you on the show. You are so passionate about what you do and you drive so much positive impact to the industry. We've got to ask first and foremost, what is it that makes you so passionate? Why do you do what you do? Yeah, no, thank you for the, for the question. It's a, it's a real good one. And I, um, started in healthcare, actually in revenue cycles. My first job out of college was actually as a revenue cycle consultant uh, for this oh. firm called Stockhamp and Associates based out of uh, Portland, Oregon. It's mm-hmm. actually now part of Huron Consulting Group. And um, every single doctor, I don't have any doctors in my family. So I was in college, every single doctor I talked to said, whatever you do, don't become a doctor because all the uh, <laughs> bureaucracy and administration, HMOs, they've ruined the practice of medicines back in the 90s. And so I said, oh, I want to learn about that. So I actually worked back in the billing and business office of the University of Kansas Medical Center and the Cleveland Clinic and several other hospital systems. And this is back when billing was actually done with, uh, with hard copy bills. The only electronic payer was Medicare. That was it. Yep. Everything else was hard copy. So like literally there were stacks and stacks of bills underneath potted plants on people's desks. And we would like oh pull them gosh. out and we would be like, are you going to submit this? It's from like six months ago. So, but, and then I went, went on to medical school residency at Johns Hopkins in internal medicine, but literally the, the way that the money flows in healthcare literally impacts people's lives, right? It literally impacts their health. It impacts the hospital. It impacts the physician. And so like patient care, like literally whether you're sick or getting better, whether you have these issues of money are fundamental to this. And so I'm so passionate about it, not because I care about the money, but I care about the tremendous impact that it has on patient care. And so if there are things that we can do to like straighten out the money situation, then that's going to help a lot of people. So that, that's why I'm so passionate about it. Oh my gosh, how, how beautifully said. And I have to tell you, Kim and I, so I, I have family in the Midwest, spent a lot of time in the Nebraska, Kansas, Iowa metro. But I grew up near Hopkins and Kem has worked at Hopkins for a long time. So I just love to see those intersections. And, uh, you know, Kem, if you started in RevCycle, I guess he is who we want to be when we grow up, right? I mean, absolutely. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's hardly, it, but that's very kind. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm seriously though, you are such an inspiration to us. And, you know, one other thing I have to know, you use your whiteboards so completely effectively in teaching. What makes the whiteboard the perfect medium, the perfect teaching tool uh, to use in those videos for explanation purposes? Yeah, I just like it because it's fast. So I literally can get all the stuff up on the board super quick and I can shoot the video and then I can, it obviously doesn't take a lot, you know, to edit it, but I can do kind of everything end to end in about a half hour, 45 minutes. So I'm just, 
the most important thing, um, one of my favorite quotes is from this guy, Linus Pauling, who's actually won two Nobel Prizes, one for chemistry and one for yeah. peace. And, when, and one of Linus Pauling's quotes is, is that if you want to have a good idea, you have to have a lot of ideas. And so the key is, is volume. And so I just, I knew I wanted to create a lot of videos because not all my videos are good. <laughs> Some of my videos are very bad. <laughs> and, but the point is, is, is it, it's almost impossible to know beforehand which videos are good and which videos are bad. You just make a ton of videos and I'll make a video and I'll put something up on the whiteboard. I'm like, oh, it's a fantastic idea. This is the best thing ever. And then like nobody will watch it. And then I'll make this video. I'm like, this is kind of a dumb topic. And then like, it'll be like one of my most popular videos. So I have no idea beforehand what's going like, <laughs> to for people. So I just want to create a whole bunch of stuff. I want to make it super easy. So that's why I use the whiteboard. And, you know, with all of that information that's out there, I think from my perspective and even Taya's perspective, there's like information overload. You know, how do you prioritize the information you receive in order to create your whiteboard sessions? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. And it's really... Um, it's kind of twofold. So one is so much about healthcare finance is not obvious. It's hidden. And so what I like to do is I like to think to myself, okay, well, what's the non-obvious stuff that's out there? And I like to focus on the non-obvious stuff. So what's an example of non-obvious stuff? I mean, I just did a video, uh, posted a video today about prior authorization. Like it, like most people don't know that prior authorization is outsourced by the carriers to other companies. Like the carrier insurance carrier itself is not doing their own prior authorization. If somebody else is doing it, okay, so that's not obvious. Okay, what else is not obvious? What else is not obvious is that okay, the clinical requirements for those prior authorizations, whether you can or cannot have surgery or an MRI, guess what? those aren't even created by the prior authorization outsourced vendor. There's another layer behind that. And so it's about, as is the case in, in many other areas in life, it's about turning over rocks. And so I think to myself, okay, what are some things that people just don't know about? And I, and I try to bring light to that stuff. And that's why I kind of jokingly say that my videos are so boring, right? Because most stuff that's in the news intentionally is like flashy. Because if you're in the news business, you're, you're in the attention business. You're trying to get people's attention, put ads on it, blah, blah, blah. And so the stuff that is more sort of hidden, it's, not as, it's, it's kind of boring, but it really drives so much, you know, because everyone's had to deal with a prior authorization issue, right? And so it's like, the question is, is really why? If you start, you know, probably heard of that uh, technique of the five whys, you keep asking why, well, why, well, why? Yeah. You just, you just keep getting into that. So that's one. And then the other one is actually like the video that I just did about the price transparency uh, law and why the, you know, the prices are so different at the hospitals is really it's doing, it's taking an, a, a topic that's, you know, quote unquote hot in healthcare, but talking about it in a way, again, that is not necessarily talked about in the, the, mainstream media. And I don't mean mainstream media, like in a pejorative sense, I just mean like, yeah, but there's kind of more going on there. Right. You know, if, if you're a journalist, you know, it's almost impossible to have the full sort of scope of understanding when you're reporting on this stuff. Like, that's not my point. My point is, is that, well, there's kind of something else, you know, going on here in this news story and to try to take those new, those news stories and put them in more context. So like one of my most popular videos was around the, when the CEO of United Health Group resigned. 
And it's like, ah, there's kind of more going on there than, you know, what they actually, you know, were talking about. So let's kind of d- d- dig into that. So, and I kind of jokingly say, I'm like, look, I've been doing this since December of 2019. And here we are in the summer of 2021. So it's kind of almost two years um, now that I've been doing this. And um, excuse me, it was December of 2018. So it's actually almost three years that I've been doing this now. Um, wow. I'm just getting warmed up. Yeah. I got decades of material to go. I mean, <laughs> you know, this is what, you know, trillions of dollars. It's almost 20% of our economy. I mean, I'm just getting warmed up. I've got, you're going to see me with like a walker in front of a whiteboard. You know, <laughs> I'll have like the little tennis balls on the bottom. So I'm going to be doing this forever. Well, I have to tell you, I, whenever I'm watching those videos, it's, I think one, because Kim and I are so passionate about healthcare, um, but two, because so much transparency is missing from this industry. There's so much opacity from between the general public and what's actually going on in the industry. And I feel like each one of your videos is almost like an expose. I mean, we are watching them completely just enthralled with everything that you're talking about because it's so true. It's so important. It is significantly impacting patients and patient care and provider wellness and and their satisfaction, right? And burnout across the industry. And you're the only one talking about it in such a direct way. And we just, we absolutely love that uh, about your shows and about all of the episodes that come out. It's one of the reasons we wanted to to bring you onto the show. I mean, you've written a book, you had a company you built to over 1.8 million members. And, you know, you just started a new position. We, We congratulated you already. But I mean, your productivity is off the charts. What you're doing for the industry is astronomical. We aspire to help impact the industry the same way. What advice do you have for those of us who who want to do the same thing you are, who want to bring more transparency into the industry and help repair some of the the things that are going on, remove those extraneous layers of administration, for example? What advice do you have for those of us that that kind of want to do what you're doing? Yeah. So, I mean, this is going to sound kind of weird. I don't watch television. So I don't like I don't I don't I, I have no interest. I have no interest in any, you know, so I, um, I, it's, it's, it's a, I really like, this is like, it's fun for me. So, you know, that is, you know, not, not, not to get overly uh, philosophical, but there was, you know, I I think it was Aristotle who said, look, look where your, where your passion and the world's needs meet, there lies your vocation. And so I just, re- you know, for everybody, it doesn't matter, you know, listen, the you know, money and healthcare, healthcare finance is kind of my thing. I don't know why I'm passionate about it, but I just am. It just, you know, it struck my funny bone and it just is intensely uh, interesting to me. And I really enjoy it. And other people understanding how healthcare finance works is of use to society. And that's just, everybody just has to find their own personal passion. And, and, and then, how can you translate that passion into providing value for other people? And look, for some people, their passion is surfing. So fine, open a surf shop, you know, and like teach other people how to surf, right? But the point is, is that you have to, you have to, you know, that really, uh, and it really came from my the first job I ever had at the age of sixteen, where I, I you know, wasn't any, it was over the summer, but it wasn't anything fancy. But I was working forty hours a week, right? Typical. And guess what happens when you're 16 working 40 hours a week? You're like, holy moly, that's a lot of time. Like, that's like yeah. my life. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like time <laughs> for anything. 
Like, holy moly, you got to be kidding me. So I'm like, I better really like what I'm doing at my job because there's no way I'm going to spend 40 <laughs> hours a week doing something that I hate. And, and that was just at the age of 16, I just decided, I'm like, whatever my job is, I'm going to like it. And, and that is so, and when you have a job that you like, then, you know, the saying is you never have to work a day in your life. So yeah. that, is, that, so at, you know, healthcare and finance, blah, 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 that doesn't have to be anybody's passion, but the key is finding your passion because once you find your passion, then it's not work at all. It's a, it's a joy to do it. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think for the most part, everyone who is in healthcare is, is in it because they're, they're passionate about serving. They want to serve others. And whether that's, you know, a front office receptionist, a physician, a nurse practitioner, uh, a coding specialist, we're all here to serve. Um, and what we're seeing right now in the industry, I think, are so many opportunities um, that have come out of the unfortunate pandemic and the public health emergency, right? We're seeing a shift to telehealth. We're seeing shifts in innovation, which can, can obviously um, only help um, our you know, patient population, um, but we're also seeing threats, right? And those threats are financial, those threats are patient care, regulation. From your perspective, because you are so ingrained in trends in healthcare, what, are, what do you think are the, the top maybe three threats that we all need to, to be mindful of? And, and what are your ideas on how the industry should tackle those, those threats? Yeah, so uh, this is a great, it's a great question. And uh, to a certain extent, um, not innovating and, and sticking to the status quo is actually probably the biggest threat. So being tied to the past and not changing and really the way that, the, okay, so let me give you a concrete example of that. The pandemic has highlighted how if you have, so we talk about things that are not obvious, right? The key economic driver for a hospital system is commercial insurance reimbursement for in three service areas. And those are musculoskeletal, i.e. orthopedics and spine, cardiovascular, cardiology stuff, and cancer. Okay. Now, not Medicare, not Medicaid reimbursement for this, but specifically commercial insurance, i.e. employer-sponsored health plans for those three services. And the vast majority of those three services, especially on the musculoskeletal side, are elective. And so we saw with the pandemic that those elective orthopedic and spine procedures were canceled. And when that happened, the main economic driver for that hospital system to like, like, like the, the model for how they make money is through those procedures. And when that volume went away, then their entire economic model of a fee-for-service hospital system built on commercial insurance payment for three areas, it fell apart and it fell Dr. through the floor. Dr. Ricker, I'm, I'm sorry. I just have to, I have to pounce on that for a moment because okay. when you think about the, you, you called it like mainstream, right? Mainstream ideas would have never uncovered those three factors that you just pointed out. There's so many other factors, I think, that most folks attributed the, the financial um, downturn of hospitals. They did not attribute yeah. it to those three areas. 
Um, so you hit the nail on the head when it comes to, you know, kind of uncovering those rocks and really bringing to light things that um, are not mainstream. I'm so glad that you brought that up. I just had to tell you that. Well, and this is what, you know, this is to a certain extent, okay, what I just told you is not rocket science. Every single hospital CEO knows this. Every single hospital CFO knows this. Every single hospital head of patient financial services or, or patient billing understands it. So like you go to the hospital financial, uh, uh, HFMA, Hospital Financial Management Association of America, right? You go to one of their meetings, every single person in that meeting knows what I just told you, right? But the point is, is that that is not spoken about, okay? That is not, oh, you know, oh, we do all this stuff for labor and delivery and we do all this stuff for, you know, an emergency room. And it's like, but like, let's get down to brass tacks. Like, what is it that drives the financials of a hospital? And it's what I just told you. And they know that. Okay. So now to your question about the threats, smart CFOs and smart CEOs realize but that's a huge risk. And it is not smart to have your financial foundation for your hospital be in commercial insurance for three service areas. That's a bad idea. And so what they've done at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and at Geisinger and at Intermountain Healthcare and these other hospitals is say, look, we need to be more innovative in terms of the financial foundation of our hospital system. And we need to start our own insurance company and collect premium. So in Western Pennsylvania, you buy UPMC health insurance. When you're in Northeastern Pennsylvania, you can buy Geisinger health insurance. When you're in Utah, you can buy, they don't call it Intermountain health insurance. They give it a different name, but you buy Intermountain health insurance. And what that does is that brings in a set fixed amount of premium that you're going to be getting in regardless of patient volume. And they have, and now they still do fee for service. They, not all their patients in their hospital come from their own health plan. They still got Medicare, Medicaid. They still got Blue Cross United coming to their hospital. But the point is, is that they have diversified the financial foundation of their hospital system. And guess what hospital systems were much in, in much better shape during the pandemic. It was those mm -hmm. hospitals that owned a health plan. Because if anything, when the patient volume went down, they still collected the premium. So they hedged their bets. So the point is, is that this isn't some sort of like, you know, Pollyannish, like you're like a CEO, CFO, head of patient financial services. It's in their own self-interest to be more diversified in their revenue streams and to start a health plan. Like, again, this doesn't have to be some sort of do-gooderness, right? I mean, literally, it's a good idea for your own personal, for your own personal job security. It's a good idea if maybe you thought about doing that. You know, and I think that private practicing physicians could take that advice as well, diversifying. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's, that's wonderful advice in, in terms of tackling a threat. Cool. Yeah, I think that, you know, when the, the pandemic really, you know, started to pick up speed, so many of us were scrambling to figure out how to stay afloat and, you know, changing workflows and, and looking at the financial models. And so to your point, um, Kim and I have a lot of these discussions, at least on the denial side, as much as you can do from a preventive standpoint to protect your organization, 
that's what you should do. So if that means, you know, diversifying, do that. If that means doing extra work so that you are preventing, you know, denials from happening, you should be doing that, right? If like right now staffing and recruiting is becoming a huge issue. So you should be focused on corporate culture and employee retention. Um, so I think that that what you were talking about, you know, in this very specific example permeates through so many sections of the organization also. So definitely key for, for all of our listeners. And I have a, I have to ask, you know, you you are obviously well educated. You've spoken, you know, you've you've quoted many people. It's it's clear to me that you either read a lot or do a lot of audiobooks or or that you enjoy something of that nature. Um, apart from our book, obviously, I'm sure you love that one. Nobody nobody wants to read anything other than our textbook on revenue cycle management when they're going to sleep at night. <laughs> uh, it's actually, it's a great resource, but you know, what, what would you recommend our readers take a look at to, to shift their, their vision, you know, to get that new perspective or to maybe get that motivation to do these things in their organization? Yeah. So, so you're, you're right. Um, uh, I, I don't know who, uh, who, who said it, but, you know, somebody said that, you know, if you want to see if somebody is uh, uh, going to be a, a good leader, the first thing you need to do is ask to see their library, uh, their own personal library. So you've got to you got to you got to read books. If you, if you don't read, it's essentially the same thing as not being able to read. Uh, and so I, I do audiobooks because I am in the car a lot. And so obviously I can't read them with my eyes, but I can listen to them. I also live on a small farm. And what do you got when you got a small farm? You got a lot of chores. So I'm always listening to audiobooks while I'm doing chores with animals, um, changing the bedding for the chickens or doing their water, whatever, right? So, um, so you got to constantly, um, you got to constantly educate. And that was really the, you know, the, the sort of fancy term that is used is, is being autodidact. You have to be able to teach yourself. And if anything, honestly, I think that was actually what I learned the most about in medical school, because when you're, when you graduate from medical school, believe it or not, you're actually an idiot. Like you actually, do not <laughs> you, you don't know how to take care of patients at all. Like if someone's like, oh, I just graduated from medical school, like run away from that person because they don't know how to take care of patients at all. Right. And, but, you know, during your residency, it's like, that's where you figure out how to actually do patient care. Right. So fine. But when you finish your residency, there's in no way, shape or form that what you know at the end of your residency is going to allow you to, to be a good physician five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years down the road. You have to constantly be learning. And if they taught us anything in medical school and residency is that, look, the responsibility to do that learning is on you. No one's going to spoon feed you about that, right? Seek and you shall find. You got to be a seeker. Like you're not, you know, it doesn't say be a spoon feeder and you shall be spoon fed, right? <laughs> I mean, you got to seek this out. So the, the key is, and so what does that mean? The fancy, you know, that's just a fancy way of saying you got to be curious. So I'd say that, that curious, and that, that was a, that was a famous Steve, Steve Jobs quote, right? Steve Jobs said, you know, stay curious, you know, so uh, I think curiosity goes a long way. And look, some people just aren't curious. It's just not in their nature. Like, and that's okay. Like you can't force somebody to do something that's just not in their nature. But if you're curious, then the world is your oyster, especially now 
uh, now that we have the internet and YouTube. And I will just tell you that one of the best, one of the best things to do, honestly, if you're curious about something, honestly, is to use YouTube as a search tool and you specifically want what you do. And I'll give you a little tip. The YouTube search automatically goes by relevance. So what you do is you go into YouTube and you turn that off and you switch it to view count. And by doing that, it turns off the YouTube algorithm of what is quote unquote relevant because YouTube doesn't know what's relevant to you. Right. What you want to use yeah. is you want to use um, view count because that's like people voting with their eyes. Like they're like, I've watched this and it's, and it's <laughs> fascinating. It's fascinating what happens when you switch it from relevance to view count and all sorts of videos pop up that you would have never expected before. And People have made videos about every, I mean, you name it, literally, people have made videos about everything. One of, again, one of my most popular videos was one about the, the, about Steve Phoebus, the CFO of Pullman Regional, Regional Medical Center in Washington state, where like, he's presenting to the executives and the doctors at the hospital. And he like, like he, he like tells the truth. Like it's a YouTube video of a hospital CFO telling the truth. It was like jaw dropping, like I, I've never seen anything like it. And the um, and what's interesting is when I um, find these videos on YouTube and then I make my own video about them, they then take the video down. That's happened multiple times. So, I'll, and I'll give you an example of that. So for um, the University of Massachusetts Medical Center, they had a video of one of their quote unquote strategists talking about how they hired a um about how they they excuse me they lost a cardiothoracic surgeon to a competing hospital and as a result they lost all of the cardiologist referrals to their hospital because the cardiologists were loyal to that cardiothoracic surgeon not to the hospital wow and so what they did was they went around the cardiothoracic surgeon and they knocked on the doors of all those cardiologists and they said hey you guys need to keep sending your patients to the University of Massachusetts, not to that cardiologist who went to that competing hospital system. And they succeeded. They succeeded in getting wow. those uh, cardiologists to get the referrals. So referrals are a huge deal. I mean, referrals are gold for a hospital system. Yeah. And so the point is, is that referrals don't ha happen by accident. Referrals are an intentional strategy by a hospital system to drive patient volume. And the University of Massachusetts had a problem where they lost their referrals because they lost their cardiothoracic surgeon. And then they strategically went out to cardiologists to get them to refer back to the university of Massachusetts medical center. And their, their strategy person admitted all of this in a video. And I talked about that in one of my videos, they took the video down. Oh. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it is hard to get information out there and it makes you wonder, oh you know, why, why take the video down? Because right. they don't want people knowing that the cardiologists actually liked sending it to the cardiothoracic surgeon and that it was only when they were wooed by the hospital that they changed their referral pattern. That if they had, if they had left those cardiologists alone, they would have kept referring to the cardiothoracic surgeon that they liked and that was giving them good service and was treating their patients well. And so that, you know, at the end of the day, that, listen, it's an important point to think. You think, oh, I'm just getting this referral. Patient referrals are like a finely choreographed dance, okay? Like yeah. people don't just, just randomly get on stage and perform a choreographed dance, right? Yeah. Like they do it because <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was trained. It was a yeah. plan. And referrals yeah. are a plan.
So people need to understand that referrals are a plan. And, and I also think that referrals are built on relationships as well and cultivating those relationships. There's so much that goes into that cultivation, good service, good care, quality communication. So, yeah, I mean, I, we totally agree with you. Um, you know, I'm thinking about where we're kind of going in terms of leadership in, in healthcare. Um, there, it, you are obviously a teacher, right? We, we kind of see you as a teacher, um, as an educator. Both Taya and I, I think we see ourselves as teachers and educators as well. We develop a lot of content. We deliver a lot of uh, you know, programs to our colleagues and to others. Um, and in doing so, we obviously have opinions, right? But there are times where we have to be objective. And you have a really keen way of remaining objective um, in your whiteboard sessions. Um, what's your secret to avoiding confirmation bias? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. So I will tell you that probably the most important class I ever took in high school, I took a journalism class. I wrote for the high school newspaper. And, you know, what do they teach you in journalism? It's the who, what, when, where, why, and how, right? The five W's and an H. And that is, that's what journalism is about. And it's, a, it's about reporting what is, it's not reporting what you want it to be. And, um, and actually one of my, um, one of my mentors is a, is a investigative journalist for ProPublica. His name's Marshall Allen. He's a friend of mine. And he himself does this. He's like, it's very important for, this is him talking. He's like, it's very important for me as a journalist, not to look at things the way I want to see them, but to look at them the way that they are. And so that is, um, I just want to say that that is a, um, that is a conscious, and you have to consciously do that, right? Because we're all biased. Like I'm, I'm biased. Everybody's biased. And the point is, is you have to recognize your own bias and then actively work to negate it or to do something about it or to minimize it. Okay. So probably the easiest way to do biased instruction or to do biased reporting or biased teaching is to not acknowledge the fact that you're biased, right? And just be like, look, I'm biased. I am. I admit it. I confess I'm, uh, I'm biased. And then once you confess that, then you say, okay, well, what can I do to address that? Well, there's some very basic things you can do to address that. Put yourself in the other person's shoes. Argue the other side of the point. Again, it was somebody who once said, you know, a truly, you know, a, a, a truly, you know, you know, good mind is capable of arguing against their own point, right? <laughs> you have to be able to argue against your own point. Maybe I'm wrong. Very true. Let's talk. Let's talk about why I, I might be wrong, right? So, because guess what? You know, and I, I apologize. I'm giving you a gazillion quotes here, but also Teddy Roosevelt, you know, president said, "Look, I, I'm only capable of being right about 75% of the time. Anything beyond that, that's pretty good. I think probably most people in America probably think they're right more than 75% of the time." Oh, and here I'm you have sure. a president of the United States who's like, yeah, I'm probably only right about 75% of the time, right? So, you know, chances are there's a good quarter chance, if not more, that, you know, everybody, all of us is wrong. And so you got to inspect that. So anyway, 
a long-winded answer to your question, but the, 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 the point is, is that you do it intentionally. You stick like just in this article I did about the, the five W about the New York times and that price transparency article, the, the New York times article, they, they completely left out the, the W of the Y. And I'm like, you know, so to a certain extent, um, that's why it's important for us to be, to be seekers because we can't just passively rely on other people answering the five W's and the H for us. We have to do our own kind of, okay, kind of what's, what's going on here. So anyway, Miss Petridis was the, was our, was our high school, uh, uh, journalism, uh, school newspaper sponsor. So I guess you can credit Miss Petridis. With the- <laughs> we will make you remember her that. name. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, wow, that that's fantastic. You know, I, I also think about all of the, the biases that we come into healthcare with and trying to leave those biases at the door. Um, wow, you know, you just said a mouthful. There's so many thoughts that I have. I wish we had more time to go <laughs> to go deeper into that. Hopefully we can bring you back again to, to talk sure. more about that. <laughs> um, so so Taya, I know we're we're kind of wrapping up here. Um just wanted to see if you had any final thoughts for for Dr. Bricker before we kind of close out. I just want to say thank you so much, you know, not only for taking your time to chat with us this morning, but honestly for for all the contributions inside and outside of healthcare. I even just tackling the price transparency discussion, just that one discussion and, and providing additional education and insight is going to help so many and you've done that across thousands of topics so thank you so much for all of your contributions and of course for your time today we are very grateful yes rev well, divers we're, we're oh go ahead <laughs> no I was, I was just I'm, I'm glad you said rev divers because um you know one so thank you so much for having me and rev divers thank you so much for for listening and you know i would say that you know what you and, and I listen. I literally would sit down with patient accounting reps in you know 1998, and I would work through uh, the bills with them. And honestly, one of my favorite uh, departments in the billing office was the self-pay department, right? Because you would see literally the impact on these people's lives of you know bills for five thousand, ten thousand. $50,000 for somebody who self-pay and then right next to the self-pay department, you know, it was cubicles, right? Self-pay cubicle right next to the self-pay cubicles was the, was the cubicles for customer service. And so you would see the self-pay bills going out and then you could literally hear the, the people calling into customer service, just a few cubicles over. And so, I mean, this is a, this is a huge deal. What people do in revenue cycle is a huge deal. So what you're doing for the industry is super important because there is absolutely a role for ethical, responsible, moral, righteous, virtuous revenue cycle within healthcare. Like the industry doesn't have to be bad. The industry can be good. It can be very good. And, I, and I'm just so thankful that it has people like you having these podcasts so that we can talk about those things. Wow. Thank you so much for being with us oh today, Dr. Bricker. That was amazing. I know that our Rev Divers are going to thoroughly enjoy this episode. And we're looking forward to next episodes that are coming up. 
Rev Divers, thank you so much for joining today. Dr. Bricker, thank you so much for just sharing all of your expertise and your passion for healthcare with us and with the world. Thank you. All the best. Thanks.